John 17. This message will be a two-part message uh, spanning this morning and this evening titled The Divine Source of Discipleship. We've been on a bit of a discipleship mini-series in John since John 13, talking about various aspects of discipleship, talking about our enablement, talking about our courage, talking about our source, talking about all of those aspects of what it means to be a disciple. We've been talking about discipleship in our Sunday school hour as well, trying to draw some of these concepts into practical application as we recognize how discipleship not only touches us as Christians, but us as humans, how it really makes them one and the same. The way we live our lives is 24-7, 365 as a believer. There's no difference in our hearts, in our lives, between the secular and the sacred. Well, this morning, we kind of come to the culmination of our discipleship miniseries, the divine source of discipleship. It's often um, called Jesus' prayer for the disciples, perhaps the Lord's prayer, depending on who you talk to. Most people don't consider this one the official Lord's prayer. But Jesus Christ is praying for his disciples here. And as I was studying this out, having seen this discipleship focus in John 13 and following, though I appreciate, and we all ought to appreciate, the prayer aspect of what Jesus Christ is saying here, what we'll find as we go through it today is Jesus is really giving a template. A template of what it means to be a disciple and how it is that we can pattern our lives in such a way to not only be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but to disciple others as God has called us to. And we'll see that through the example of Jesus Christ himself. We've defined excuse me, discipleship in Sunday school this way. Taking a person from where he is in his relationship with Jesus Christ to where the Word of God Jesus Christ wants them to be. Discipleship is a process. It's not an event. It is a journey. It's not an action. Discipleship needs time. It needs discipline. It needs understanding. It needs personal determination. It needs maturity. And it needs, certainly, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, the help of the Holy Spirit. No one is going to become the perfect disciple of Jesus Christ overnight. No one is going to have all of the answers in a matter of hours. But you know, discipleship is happening all around us, and it's happening to each person in this room who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 verse 6 says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work, and you will perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. As Paul began speaking to the Philippian believers, and I'm going to have you flipping around in your Bibles a lot today. I don't normally do this, but today you'll be doing a lot of page turning. As Paul was speaking to the Philippian believers. He said, one of the first things he said is, I am confident in this very thing, that the God who has begun a good work in you will finish it. He will continue it, and he will finish it. That's that idea of discipleship, that we are all being formed into the image of Christ. God has begun a good work in you if you are a born-again believer, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That moment when you were born again, the idea of being born anew, being born a second time, being born of the Spirit, you began a new life, a life in Christ. And now you are growing in that grace. You are growing in that life. You are growing into maturity. Since John 13, the Scriptures have narrowed in on Christ's attempts to teach His disciples, to disciple them. 
if you will. We've heard the lessons, we've seen the illustrations, we've drawn the applications. We may not have understood it all, but that's okay, neither did the disciples. But we have learned it all. And so as we live our lives, as we go from point A to point B to point C, as we mature, as we understand, as we face experiences, the things that Jesus Christ has taught in his word will come back to our minds and back to our hearts, and they will apply through the Holy Spirit at the time necessary, just as it did with the disciples. Now today we get to John 17, very well-known passage of Scripture. Jesus prays for his disciples, both those standing with him, and as we'll see in the text today, as well those who would come after, those who would believe on Christ's name following, those whom the disciples would lead to Christ. And while there are many things that we can learn from this passage, we can learn about God's sovereignty, we can learn about God's greatness, as we sang this morning, we can learn about God's love, we can certainly learn much about the nature of prayer as well, since we're focusing in on discipleship, and as we have walked through discipleship over these past many weeks, what we're really seeing in John 17 is the culmination of Jesus' teaching to his, excuse me, to his disciples. He's taught them, and now it's time for them to be set out on their own. As I was putting this message together, I wanted to give an illustration. You know, he's taught them, and now it's time for him to push them out of the nest. And there are various birds that push their children out of the nest and let them fly. And so I thought, well, let me find one of these illustrations. And I started looking at eagles and how eagles teach their young to fly. And as I was reading about them, eagles don't just push their young out of nests. And as I started reading, I said, well, you know, that's an even more apt and appropriate. The way an eagle teaches his young is an even more appropriate illustration of what Jesus Christ is calling us to do as disciples. Eagles don't push their children out of the nest in a sink or swim scenario. For months, eagles patiently instruct their young they will make sure their young are watching, and they'll fly around. They will show them how it's done. They will reflect the proper means by which for these young eagles to fly. And then as things progress, that eagle will take something that the, the young eagles like, some food that the young eagles like, and will hold that food, and will fly with that food, so that the eagles begin to have an incentive to get themselves out of the nest and get moving. Until the point where the eagle will fly far enough away with the food that the, eagle, the young eagles must fly over to get that which they desire the most. And through a process of training and through a process of reflection of how it is one is intended to fly, and then a little bit of motivation as well, an eagle will teach her young how to fly as well. Throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, he has done a similar thing with his disciples. He has certainly sought the lost. We know that. We've read that. But he has not sought the lost at the expense of teaching his disciples. See, they've been there. They've watched him. They've watched his interactions. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teachings. Without even necessarily realizing it, they have been learning how to disciple by watching Jesus' disciple. And Jesus expects then that they will take those lessons and teach others that as they see how it is one flies, and they begin to fly, then they can teach others how to fly as well. 
And that's what we're going to see in this two-part message, both this morning and this evening. This morning we're going to look at the first two points of six points in regard to the process of discipleship. We're going to learn how to disciple properly by studying Jesus' description of how he discipled properly. We're going to see how he did it, because he's going to describe how he did it. And we're going to learn how we ought to do it by how he did it. And as we do so, we'll learn both how to be a better disciple in and of ourselves, as well as how to better disciple others in our lives. So fathers, pay attention. You have children to disciple. Brothers, sisters, pay attention. You have siblings to disciple. Co-workers, employees, employers, pay attention. You've got co-workers to disciple, employees to disciple. Everyone in here has discipleship opportunities. So pay attention. We've got a lot to learn. Six steps in the process of discipleship is the proposition, as I state it, as exemplified in the life and ministry of our Master, Jesus Christ. And the first step we're going to look at this morning, found in verses 1 through 5, is the, 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 the foundational step, and that is obedience. The foundational step of obedience. Jesus prays to God, and he begins with these words. The hour is come. Found in verse 1. As Jesus stated this, this was not to inform his father. Notice he's praying. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Jesus is not informing God of something God didn't know. Jesus is not saying here, okay, God, you didn't know this, but the hour, it, it's time. This is, this is now the time, and I just need you to be aware of what's going on. He's not saying that. What he's doing is he is acknowledging the time that he was in, the time that God had ordained him for, and the reason for his prayer. God, I am coming before you in prayer because the hour has come. It is my time to commit my disciples unto you because the hour is now come. What hour? What hour is it that has now come? Look at the second half of verse 1. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. The hour had come for Jesus to be glorified and thus to glorify his father. That's what hour had come. That's what Jesus says here. The hour is come, glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee. But we know that this time that had come, as we look at it in scripture, is the time of his crucifixion. So what we understand is that the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion are indeed, and in fact, the events surrounding his glorification. This should not surprise us as we understand the scriptures. Why was Jesus' death going to be synonymous with his glorification? Well, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Keep your thumb in John. We'll be back. Told you we'd be doing some turning today. Philippians chapter 2. Why is it that Jesus Christ's crucifixion, which he was about to experience, is synonymous with his glorification? Well, let's look beginning in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Very familiar passage. Many of you know it well. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we see this first element of his crucifixion the event that transpired whereby he humbled himself and became obedient unto the death of the cross. Verse 9, 
wherefore, wherefore, coordinating conjunction, connecting that which was with that which is to come, wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, his death on the cross, and particularly the resurrection three days later, is the means by which Jesus Christ has received a name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus Christ, one day, whether it's the people in this room, whether it's the people in Buffalo or in Minnesota, or it's that atheist group in Colorado that's causing problems for this, um, this convention right now, every knee will indeed bow before Jesus Christ one day. Every tongue will indeed say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And as Jesus prayed, glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify me, me, uh, thee. It says right at the end here of Philippians 2.11, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ was about to enter into a time of tremendous persecution, tremendous suffering, death at the hands of sinners on one of the most cruel forms of punishment ever invented by man. And he was going to do it in order that God's plan could be fulfilled, in order that the sins of the world could be atoned. And his resurrection three days later is going to prove the glory of God and the glory of Christ. Jesus Christ came in flesh, preached repentance, did signs and wonders, then humbled himself and became obedient unto the cross. Jesus' death is synonymous with his glorification because when his death was, while his death was nothing short of the absolute obedience to God's will, his absolute obedience was verified in that victory over the grave when he rose again. This is the vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. Please turn with me there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Daniel chapter 7. You say, Pastor, you just went and read something from Philippians, and now you're jumping back to Daniel. Yes, the scripture is the best commentator on itself. All the scriptures are true, Old Testament and New Testament alike. And the Old Testament spoke of that which would come in the New Testament, and this is one of those passages. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision. And notice what he says in verse 9. I beheld till thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like a pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. So Daniel's seeing a vision here. And it's a vision of one that's called the Ancient of Days. This is a vision of Jehovah God. And fiery, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, 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 thousands ministered unto him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. He's seeing Judgment Day. And I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and 
time. I have described what's happening here when I preached my sermon on Daniel, or my series on Daniel some time ago. Those sermons are online if you're interested in hearing them. Verse 13, I saw in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. What Daniel's seeing here is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, coming and standing before Jehovah God, the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Verse 14, And there was given him, the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So we see prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, that which came to, is about to come to pass in the book of John, that which Jesus is, is speaking of in his prayer, which, as we understand from Philippians, is indeed God's plan. You may turn back to, to John 17. We saw in both Philippians and Daniel that another part of Jesus' glorification, not just this idea of his obedience, but also his authority. His authority was not just over the elements as he showed on this earth through miracles, nor was it just over kingdoms, but it was over the souls of men. And so Jesus has been given all authority, an authority that extends his glory to all those whom God has given him, thus securing for them eternal life. Now the question must then be asked, what does Jesus mean when he says that he now has authority to give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him? We note that God has given to Jesus Christ the authority that he possesses. That's what Jesus Christ says in verse 2. As thou hast given him power, that's Jesus' power, over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. A part of this gift of authority was the authority over the souls of men according to God's divinely appointed standard, belief on Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus died, when he rose again, the standard for salvation was belief on Jesus Christ. That was the standard by which every man either is accepted into heaven or is condemned to hell. See, Jesus Christ covered the sins of the entire world Jesus Christ became the standard. So when Jesus states that those who receive eternal life are those whom God has given to him, he is stating that those who receive eternal life are those who will conform themselves to God the Father's divine standard of righteousness, belief. So really what Jesus Christ is saying here is not about who it is that God has given to him, but rather how a person becomes one of those. The, the verse has not as much to do with God choosing people for eternal life as much as it has to do with the means by which God has chosen eternal life to be received, belief on Jesus Christ alone into salvation. Jesus then defines what it is to have this eternal life. Verse 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He says there's the great standard. There is the standard by which all men will receive eternal life. They must believe on Jesus Christ. They must know the only true God in Jesus Christ. Whom thou hast sent. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus then reiterates the reason for his glorification. Because he has completely submitted himself to God. Let me give you an overarching picture of what Jesus Christ has just said here. God, the time has come. 
Glorify me that I may in turn glorify you. We read about that in Daniel. We read about that in Philippians. Then he says, You have given me power, that word meaning authority over all flesh, over the souls of men. You have given me this power because of my obedience and my submission so that any man can receive eternal life if they will accept Christ as their Savior. He says in verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He says that he has glorified God upon the earth. He has finished the work that God has sent him to do. And in doing so, the humility of a man that Jesus Christ clothed himself in will give way to the glory of God. A glory that, as Jesus Christ said in verse 5, he shared with the Father since the beginning of the world. This passage is an amazing declaration of God's plan. But more so, and what we see here heavily, is Christ's submission to God's plan. It's a baseline, if you will, by which we can know the essence of discipleship. And the essence of discipleship is rooted in submission to God's revealed will. We've regularly defined discipleship, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, as taking a person from where they are with their relationship with Jesus Christ to where the Word of God, Jesus Christ, wants them to be. If we are ever going to find success in this endeavor of discipleship, if we are ever going to become the disciples and the disciplers that God wants us to be, it must begin with a personal submission of our wills to the perfect will of God as revealed through His Word. And by extension, then, as we submit our will to him, we must submit our actions to the revealed word of God, the revealed will of God, as Jesus Christ did while on this earth. See, that's what Jesus is saying. here. The time has come, and I have submitted myself to you perfectly. And now it's time for your will to be done as I've submitted myself to it. Obedience, the very essence, the very beginning of discipleship is you yielding your will to God. Second, reflection. I talked about that eagle. As I talked about that eagle, I talked about how as that eagle flies, it is demonstrating how to fly. In verses 6 and 7, we see that Jesus Christ is reflecting himself and the word of God and has been reflecting the word of God, to his disciples. Look at verse 6. He says, I have manifested thy name unto men which thou hast given me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. The natural outcome of a personal obedience to the word of God, and thus a personal obedience to the will of God, is that we will become a reflection of God's word to the world around us. Very early on in Christ's ministry, at least as Matthew teaches it, we see the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus Christ preached this sermon, he said this in, verse, in Matthew 5, verse 13. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
Jesus describes his disciples here as the light that shined into the world, as a city set on a hill, as salt of the earth, as the savor, as the seasoning, as the beacon. We know from the book of John that the light which was in the world is none other than the light of Jesus Christ himself. We read 1 John 1, 9 this morning. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Jesus would later tell Thomas in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John the Baptist declared himself not to be the light, but to be one who declared the light, to be one who demonstrated the true light, and that true light was Christ. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, this is our duty as well. We are not the light, but we are a reflection of the light of Jesus Christ in our lives. This is why Jesus told us in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one another. Because when we do as Christ did, we reflect Christ, and others know who it is we serve. Have you ever been driving at night and perhaps been in a small sedan? My wife and I have some pretty small cars, particularly my, my truck is pretty low to the ground, and we had a, a, a Corolla before, and it was really low to the ground. And As you're driving at night, have you ever had like a big truck come behind you? And you're driving, and those headlights from that truck are shining right in your eyes. And you can hardly see the road, because you've got these headlights from the truck. Now, this example may not, if you've got any newer cars, they've got the automatic dimming on the head, on the rear view mirror, and it, I guess this example goes out the window. But for us people that still have to flip a little toggle to get the mirror to, to change on our cars, um, these lights, they shine right in your eyes. And you say, well, this really, in a manner of speaking, shouldn't be a problem. The truck is behind me. I don't have eyes in the back of my head, regardless of what I try to tell my daughters. And so... It really shouldn't be a problem that there's a truck behind me shining its lights. It shouldn't be a problem for my eyes, but it is. Why is it a problem for my eyes? Well, because of these things called mirrors. I have mirrors on my car, and while the car lights are shining behind me, they are shining into my mirrors, and the mirrors are thus reflecting that light into my eyes. Now, maybe you've done this. Once again, my illustration will fall apart if you have. But I have never once gotten angry at my mirror for shining light in my eyes. I've never just said, I wish my mirror would stop shining a light in my eyes. I've never done that. Because I know that it's not my mirror that's shining the light. It's the truck that's shining the light. And the mirrors are simply reflecting that which is hitting them, reflecting that which is going into them. The mirror is doing nothing more than accurately representing what is behind you and what behind you happens to be some very bright headlights. Now, in much the same way, in much the same way, we are not the word of God that pierces, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. You are not the truth. You are not the light. You are not the word of God. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, you have been called to be a mirror to be an accurate reflection of the light of God's Word. To be an accurate reflection of the truth, the light of Christ in this world around you. Now, in keeping with our illustration, 
The world doesn't like it when light shines in their darkness. I go into my daughter's room in the morning. I say, good morning, girls. It's time to be awake. And I throw open those curtains. And they don't, their eyes don't go like this. They don't get real wide. And they say, ah, oh, light, wonderful. What do they do? Oh, no. They're only 19 months, and they're already covering their eyes when I throw the curtains open in the morning. They don't want that light. It hurts their eyes. Well, the scriptures tell us that the light of the world is not going to be well received in darkness. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We are called to be an accurate reflection of the word of God in this world. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. This is what Jesus Christ did in verse 6. He says, I have manifested thy name unto men. That word manifested in the original Greek is a word that literally means to make known openly. I have made known openly what? I have manifested thy name. We often talk about this here because it's a concept that we can get kind of confused. The concept of a name in Scripture is not simply speaking of a man's moniker, not simply the letters that make up his name. It's speaking about everything that he is, his person, his word, his reputation, his character, his work, his teaching. It's all summed up in the idea of his name. And we do this too. If I told you, if I had mentioned a, a car dealership or maybe an auto mechanic in the area, and I said, yeah, that mechanic has a good name in town. Well, his name is Bob. I'm not telling you that Bob is a great name. That's not what I'm saying. I'm telling you he has a good reputation. I'm telling you he does good work. I'm telling you he's honest. I'm telling you people recognize when they hear Bob the mechanic, they know that he is an honest guy that's going to do the work right. He has a good name, a good reputation. Well, that's what Jesus Christ is speaking of here when he uses the, the word name. I have manifested thy name. God, I have manifested your person, your work, who you are, what you stand for, what you teach. I have manifested it all. I have been a reflection of everything. Just like in a mirror, a mirror is not discriminant about what it reflects. I have never walked by a mirror and seen a piece of me missing. The mirror didn't just decide, well, I want to I reflect this part of you, but not that part of you. I want to reflect your right arm, but not your left arm. When I look in a mirror, I see what I am fully. I don't get to choose what the mirror shows me. Maybe that would be nice sometimes. But that's not how mirrors work. That's not what God wants from us either. He doesn't want us to be a partial reflection. He didn't call Jesus Christ to be a partial reflection of his word. He says, I have manifested, made known, openly showed you, every bit of you, to the world. He says, unto the men which thou hast given me out of the world, thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Through Christ, his disciples now know, according to verse 7, all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Everything that I have, everything that I am, is nothing more than a reflection of you, God. As Christ has manifested the Father, Christ's disciples have seen that God the Father is the authority by which Jesus Christ ministers. They have seen firsthand the authority of God through God's Son. You know, discipleship is founded, as we've talked about, on obedience to the revelation of God. You must obey. You must submit yourself to God's will if you're going to be a 
disciple or a proper discipler of God's Word. But it is contingent upon an individual's personal determination then to reflect the teachings of God's Word in and through his life. Just as Jesus was living a manifestation of God the Father through his life to the world around him, so too it is Christ's expectation that those who he had taught, that those who believe on him, would become living manifestations of him to the world around him. In other words, let me put it this way. God saved you through Christ so that you would reflect Christ to others. Reflect his name. Reflect what he said. Reflect how he lived. Reflect what he did. Reflect what he taught. The most thorough teaching we have on this concept in Scripture perhaps is presented in the book of James. James 2 speaks on the topic of faith and works. I'm not going to go into the whole thing today uh, as far as what James is doing here, except that he's trying to prove a point. He is not teaching on how a person gets saved. Please turn with me to James 2. James is speaking to believers. He's told them that he already understands that they're believers. He's not teaching them how to get saved. He's teaching them about the importance of elements of what it means to be saved, about elements of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In James 2, I'll begin reading in verse 14. Let's read to the end of the chapter. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou, O man, excuse me, wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with, uh, wrought with his works, and by works was, uh, was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, James is not teaching here salvation by works. We, Like I said, we know that because of what he mentions in chapter 1 about them being brethren, about them being believers already. We know that that's not what he's saying because of the emphasis here, which is not upon saving faith. It is upon the reality that when a person is a disciple of Jesus Christ, he's expected to live like it. Exactly what we're talking about here. Once a person has become obedient to the Word of God, once a person has submitted himself to the revelation of God's Word, then the expectation, the natural manifestation of that in a man's life is that he'd live he'd reflect it. You say, Pastor, I still don't understand what's happening here in James. Write it down on a note, give it to me, and I'll make it one of my uh, Sunday school lessons when we do our open forum for those of you that are in the Sunday school. 
James is speaking of the very same concept Jesus taught his disciples in John 13 and 14. That a man cannot properly be known by his words, but by his actions. He said in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know, ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. He did not say that men would know you if you have a picture on the back of your car. He did not say that men would know you if you have a Bible on your shelf. He did not say men would know you because you tell them you're a Christian or if you're in from my age, you wear a WWJD bracelet. Really big when I was in high school. People know you're a disciple when Jesus Christ is manifest in your life by your works. Why is it so important? Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Titus warned that false teachers would come in the last days, and listen to his description of these false teachers. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Men that confess that they know God, men that they say they know God, men that they say they believe in Jesus Christ, but their works do not reflect it. But they have nothing in them that demonstrates Christ to the world. We of all people should know, being in a nation right now, if you read the news, if you understand what's happening in politics, having politicians that we do in this country, we of all people should know right now that words are, as, are only as good as the actions that are behind them. A man can promise the moon, but it's not about what he can promise, it's about what he can deliver. That's what James was saying in James chapter 2. That's what God, Jesus Christ himself, was teaching in John 13 and 14. That we can say we're a believer all day, but if we don't manifest it, what good does it do? If we don't live it, what good does it do? As disciples of Jesus Christ, it really doesn't matter how much we tell people that we're followers of God. It really doesn't matter what labels we put on ourselves. Christian, born-again Christian, Bible believer, Baptist, Presbyterian, really, they're labels. Labels can be helpful, but they don't tell you anything about a man's heart. They don't. The true you is not defined by your associations or your attestations. The true you is defined by your actions. We'll finish the rest of the message in part two. But lest we close just having heard a lot of words, let's try to apply a little bit of it today. Are you obedient? Jesus Christ said in John chapter 17 that he had fulfilled that which God sent him to do. That it was his time. God has a will for you. Some of that will may be unknown to you right now. Young people in this room, you don't know what God has for you for your life, but there's some of that will that's very known. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, this is the will of God concerning you, even your sanctification. We see the will of God manifested that we would reflect Jesus Christ to the world. Do you obey the word of God? Second, as I just mentioned, are you a proper reflection of God to the world? Do people know you're a Christian? At school, is it obvious that there's something different about you? At work, do people wonder what it is about you that's just different? Is the word of God more than just words? 
Is it a guide for living? Do you have a biblical worldview? Have you erected your entire life directed under the premise of submission and obedience to the Word of God? We talked about this morning. Or is your life split in two? Christian on Sunday, just whatever else the rest of the week. Christian when you're around Christians, but no one would know outside of that. See, God has not called us to live a life of hidden faith. God has called us to be light. And this is the essence of discipleship. And this is the essence of what Jesus Christ was teaching and praying in this prayer. God, I have submitted myself, obeyed your will. I have manifested you to these men. I have reflected you. This evening, we'll look at four other concepts from the Word of God. You can see them on the back page there. And we'll talk through those concepts as we continue in these steps of discipleship. And I trust that as we go through this afternoon, as we apply these concepts this evening, as we continue to learn of the Word of God, that we will be determined in our heart not just to be hearers of the Word and not doers only, as James says, deceiving our own self, but that we would be doers because we're submissive to what we do. Let's pray.